listening. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening as we should always do when we begin to study Holy Scripture. Just the mere fact of reading it is just not quite the same as studying. But nevertheless, we ask that your Holy Spirit be with us uh, so that we can understand, hopefully, what it is that you want us to hear and understand and accept. So give us the grace and the strength, again, to set aside the cares of the day and to really dedicate ourselves uh, to listening to you through the scriptures. So we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. And before we begin, I want you to all kind of keep in mind one of our members here who is uh, quite ill and uh, is in need of, of prayers because it could be close to the end. Tonight we were going to get into the study of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, now, just because we sort of passed through the explanation of the four periods of Old Testament history, and we talked about scripture starting out as history rather than sacred scripture. Nobody sits down to write sacred scripture. They sit down to write something else, with one or two exceptions. The book of Deuteronomy was one of those exceptions. It was not written as history. And we'll get into that as to why in a few minutes. The other is the book of Psalms. And you also might add the book of Sirach. The wisdom books were not written as history. They were written as prayers or instruction, as was most of the New Testament writings were written as instruction. So, what I want to get across is that what you learned in the past, whether it was in the past three weeks or past sessions, you should always sort of keep that in mind and bring it forward. It's important to uh, this particular study of Deuteronomy that you bring forth what you've learned about the four periods of Old Testament history, uh, the fact that it didn't start out, or most of the early books of the Test Old Testament didn't start out as scripture, but as histories, and therefore, without any problem at all, could be revised. Now, they weren't so interested in revising uh, and changing total meaning, the revisions came in a few words here and a few words there. For example, uh, as you know, uh, Iraq and, and Iran are both sort of in the area which includes the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Quite often when, it, when some of the scriptures of the Old Testament talk about the great rivers, they mean one or the other. But most often they will mean the Euphrates, which is on the west, and the Tigris is on the east side. Um, but they get them mixed up. So, you know, those minor differences, okay, not so important. 
the revisions also eliminated a lot of the duplication. For example, that's why we have uh, two versions of the creation story, because they came from the Elohist and the Yahwist groups. And the person who brought them together, uh, presumably the priest Ezra, said, well, you know, they both are good, and they both make a point, so we'll add them together. Well, that doesn't always work in modern history. When you're reading something and you think it's history, then why do you have two versions? And there's a few other times when there is what might be considered or appears on the surface as duplications or, in some cases, even contradictions. But if you go back to the original source, you'll see that they came from different places at different time periods, and therefore there are reasons for why some things appear to be contradictory or at least duplication. All right? So with that said, I want to get into uh, the details of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, now, because you've heard many of, of these stories over and over and over and over in church uh, and probably in school and other places, we're not going to get into every word or detail. What I want you to see and read very carefully is the commentary of this book. Because the commentary of this particular book is probably the best commentary on the subject that I've ever read. And I have several copies of Deuteronomy. Okay. Uh, this particular one is excellent because it talks about the whys and the wherefores of um, the explanations. Okay. And so let's, I just have, happen to have a, a small version rather than the three ring binder that you have, but your three ring binder came from this book. Alright, so we are talking about the same thing. But turn, turn to page five. The introduction. And I want to go through not every word, but almost every word of the introduction because, uh, and let's pause for just a moment. The first four chapters of this book was written long after the central part of the book, chapter 5 through 29. It wasn't written until about the 5th century B.C., whereas the main part, chapters 5 through 29, was written in the 7th, uh, no, 8th or 9th century, okay? So you will see that the first four chapters are somewhat of a summary of what we're going to be reading, and it also emphasizes the importance and the why. All right. right up front, the writer here of the commentary says, the book of Deuteronomy is certainly one of the most important and influential books in the Hebrew scriptures. It provided the theological perspective that dominated the former prophets 
That is, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and along with that you could add Elijah and Elisha, now commonly known as the Deuteronomistic history. Anybody want to? It exerted its influence over the final shape of a number of prophetic books, okay? notably Hosea and Jeremiah. And we'll get into why that's important. Remember, this book is the basis even for modern Judaism. And it was this book that changed um, a lot of the history of the Jewish people, particularly in the fourth time period. It was written in the second time period, but it didn't really take effect. In fact, it was almost rejected by the people of the second time period. Uh, and it was not until the Babylonian captivity and the exile where the people finally got the message and then started looking at this book seriously. And it was after the exile ended and the people returned to Israel that all of the books of the Old Testament, particularly the first five, were sort of revised into what we have now. Uh, or almost what we have now, with a few minor exceptions. The temple scroll of the Qumran community, now uh, they're talking Qumran community, we're talking about the Essenes, and this is late fourth period, early uh, pre, I mean, post-Christ period, all right? <clears throat> The temple scroll of the Qumran community was basically in Essenes' reinterpretation of Deuteronomy. The New Testament cites or alludes to Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic text almost 200 times. All right? New Testament scriptures reference or refers to or alludes to Deuteronomy at least 200 times. And when we come up against something that you are familiar with, we will sort of mention it. We'll have two of those tonight. Deuteronomy stood as a pivotal point in the life of ancient Israel. Its pages preserved traditions that were ancient at the time of its own production. Remember that this was written in the 8th or 9th century. And it took into consideration all of the teachings of Moses and all of those teachings that developed from the time of Moses to the time of this writing. And that's what it means here. It picked up things that were ancient at the time the book was written. Now those are the kinds of things that you're going to have to keep in mind. All right. It was written in the ninth or eighth century, and it went back and put the words into the mouth of Moses as if Moses wrote it because in the culture that this was written, if it wasn't given credit to some recognized authority, it wouldn't have been accepted at all. And therefore, it was put back into the time of Moses, roughly 15th century, 
BC. But its importance was not so much to uh, memorize or memorialize, I should say, these events back here. The purpose of this book was to warn the people down the road that they were headed to damnation. Remember, idolatry and apostasy had begun to slip in big time. And what the Deuteronomists were trying to do was to stem the tide and turn that. And the reason that we are studying this thing is because modern society is headed in the same direction. So, you've got to keep this kind of loop-de-loop here in mind. Very important point is made here about two-thirds of the way down. It says, the Deuteronomists, however, were not antiquarians or even historians. Their purpose in preserving, transmitting, and reinterpreting ancient tradition was to provide Israel with some direction for its future at a time when that future was in great doubt. And that's exactly what my little diagram here is trying to say. It's taking everything that happened in the past, including the teachings of Moses, but its purpose was to give direction to the people coming down the road. But Deuteronomists did their work well, for the phenomenon we know today as early Judaism was shaped in large measure by the book of Deuteronomy. Their work then stood as the bridge between the religion of ancient Israel and the faith of early Judaism and even today. Now, I'm not going to go into every word here, but as we go through, I want to point out some things. The meaning of Deuteronomy. I think we've gone over that a few times. On the next page, in the second paragraph, it says, despite the complications presented by the interpreters of Deuteronomy, the aim of the book was really quite simple. The Deuteronomists wanted to make ancient tradition speak again in a time of great crisis for Israel in order to help Israel survive that crisis. And that crisis was uh, the idolatry that had stepped in from outside as well as from within its own people. And we are experiencing that kind of thing today. Now, I don't want to get into politics and I don't intend to. Uh, tonight or any other night, but you have to understand, and I think most of you do, what I'm referring to is that people are ignoring God for all kinds of other activities, particularly the love of money, fame, fortune, and infamy, really, in many cases. Uh, just the whole idea that Things that were always spoken of uh, sort of very quietly or hush-hush years ago are now looked upon as, oh, something to be proud of. And 
God doesn't change. God doesn't look at those things any differently today than he did years ago. They saw that the great institutions of ancient Israel were dead or dying. The great things that our forefathers embedded in the Constitution are now being looked upon as antiquated, not important, and let's get rid of them, or let's ignore them. The monarchy, the prophecy, the temple, priesthood had all failed to prevent the nation from arriving at the brink of destruction, which was being caused by both internal and external forces. Well, history repeats itself. Deuteronomy suggested that Israel relearn the lessons of its formative years in the wilderness under Moses. Obedience to the law of the Lord was the only way for Israel to secure its future. The meaning of Deuteronomy then was Deuteronomy itself. The book presented itself to Israel as the last hope, obey and live or disobey and die. Now, that is what really we are looking at today. The origins of Deuteronomy. Well, we've talked about that in, in many ways, such as this little diagram here. And it goes on and on that it really didn't come into its own until uh, the 6th century during the Babylonian exile. And afterwards, it became the basis for Judaism, uh, which lasts uh, even through today. Okay. So I don't want to go into all of the details here. The form and instruction that talks about the format of Deuteronomy is somewhat analogous to a treaty of that particular time and culture. Well, that really doesn't apply much to us today. Uh, later on in the next page, it has some very important points here to make. The exhortation, this is down in the last major paragraph, the exhortation to obedience is the core of Deuteronomy. Exhortation here meaning a strong encouragement towards obedience is the core of Deuteronomy's purpose. But as Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 1 indicates, this exhortation was transformed into the text of a treaty or covenant. Remember covenant with God between God and Israel. The ancient custom and laws that regulated the mutual relationship of the people became the test of their loyalty to God. And at the bottom of that paragraph, the effect of this transformation was to make one's love of neighbor the standard and test of one's love of God. And that's exactly what Jesus preached you know, nearly, what, seven, eight hundred years later, and that is what the church still preaches today. The love of God, well, in fact, St. Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 13, verse 10, says, 
the love of God fulfills all the law. And it's referring to Deuteronomy. And so that's first century AD. So you see, that never changes. All right. Now, the scripture itself starts out, these are the words. If you want to underline that, if you will, please. These are the words. And the reason I'm sort of emphasizing that is in Old Testament scripture, whenever you see words such as that, you mean it means like, heads up, folks, I'm going to tell you something that's important. Okay. You'll see that, or words very similar to it, at the beginning of each of these four major addresses. The book is made up of four major speeches or addresses uh, given or put in the mouth of Moses, you might say, and it's divided that way for a purpose. The second speech, which of course is the majority of the book itself, chapters 5 through 29, starts out essentially the same way with uh, a major point announcing, well, let's see, let's go to it. This is the law, all right? So it's that kind of directive that says, again, heads up, folks, you're getting something that's important. Now, the first four chapters <laughs> takes the people back, reminds them of the problems almost after they left Egypt, or immediately after leaving Egypt. Now, the whole idea of the release of the Israelites by the Egyptians through the efforts of Moses and God is the most sacred event in all of Judaism, ancient and today. It is always looked upon as a very sacred time and looked upon as God's intervention in the life and culture of Judaism. And so... What this book now is talking about is that particular event and the time between that event and the entry into the promised land. And the address is given as if Moses is standing on the, the brink, you might say, or the boundary of the promised land, but still outside. And he's telling the people, this is what you should be doing and looking at, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because God has released you from slavery uh, under the Egyptians. And he reiterates all of the problems that they had during that journey of 40 years or so from the time they left Egypt to the time they entered into the Promised Land. And as he says it, it's like, now you're about to go into this, and I want you to 
pay attention and do such and such uh, because God is watching. And God will take care of you. So, so that's the kind of uh, thought or mentality with which you must read this, uh, even though you know that this was written seven or eight hundred years later. Uh, a lot of these names and places are not very important. In fact, many of them don't exist and have never been located. So we're not going to get into all of the details. Again, I would rather pay more attention to the commentary than to the scripture in this particular section. If you have questions regarding the scripture, uh, fine. Uh, you know, raise your hand and we'll talk about it. But if you really want to spend a lot of time, you know, about where is Horeb and where is Edom and where is uh, Moab and all of that, uh, I do really think that that is too important. Um, except to the fact that the 40 years that they wandered in the desert, and the term wandered is sort of a very loose description because they knew where the promised land was. It was because after the golden calf incident, God wouldn't allow them into the promised land until all of those who were involved in the golden calf incident died. Again, he could have just wiped them out, but he didn't do that. That would have been taking their free will away from them. But he did prevent them from getting into the promised land and waited until they died. In fact, even Moses, who got caught up on in this, along with his brother Aaron, of course Aaron died soon before that, before the entry into the promised land. But nevertheless, uh, Moses was sort of punished, you might say, or a lot of people think he was punished, and was not allowed to go into the promised land uh, for a variety of reasons. Well, I don't go for that for two reasons. First of all, Moses was probably a hundred years old by this time. If you think back and, and read the stories in Ex- Exodus, uh, Numbers, and Leviticus, he was roughly 40 years old when he left the home of the Pharaoh because he had murdered uh, one of the Pharaoh's uh, household for uh, a reason that I don't want to get into. He then went to keep sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro, and he tended sheep for 40 years. And then he leads the Israelites through the desert for 40 years. So the poor guy is old. You know? How much more can you do? And remember that 40 years is not a precise time period. We've talked about that many, many times. All right. In the Bible, in the culture of, of the writings, when they could not determine a length of time, they would give it the, what we call the biblical term of 40, 40 years, 40 days, you know, 40 nights, whatever, uh, because there was no universal calendar 
And besides, you know, like Jesus going out into the desert and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights before his public ministry, well, you know, he didn't take a calendar along with him and check it off day by day. Uh, or Noah and the ark, you know, didn't make a notch on a um, post to say that he was in there for 40 days and 40 nights. They just used a generalized term, okay? Not a sacred number, it's a convenience number, okay? So, we're not certain how old Moses was by the time uh, he got the people to enter the promised land. But he still was an old man, and he had done his job. You know, he had done it well. And that is uh, evidenced by the fact that he was part of the vision of Christ's transfiguration. He and Elisha. So, if he was punished and, you know, put uh, in damnation or anything, he couldn't have done that. So, he was in heaven just uh, a little early, maybe. Okay? Alright? So, let's go on. <clears throat> the preface of the first address. I'm reading from page 9, the bottom of page 9, alright? These verses function as a preamble, introducing not only the first of Moses' four addresses, or addresses, but also the entire book as well. They specify the persons involved in the events of the book, the scene of the action, and the exact time and purpose of the work. Deuteronomy purports to be the words of Moses addressed to all Israel. Here the book underscores the unity of the people of God, all of whom are subject to the divine will. While the location where the address, or the address, I should say, is given is specified with precision, the exact location of all the sites mentioned is not known. Though it is clear that the scene of the action is on the east side of the Jordan, all right, and that would be the side that is in the country of Jordan today. Remember, Israel was, the country of Israel at this time was much, much larger uh, than it is today. And it occupied both sides of the, uh, the Jordan River, all the way up to the Euphrates in the north, the northeast. Okay. All right, now, after they left Egypt and they were in the desert approximately three months or so, according to the book of Exodus, uh, God called them up and gave them, gave Moses the Ten Commandments. That was the beginning of the Jewish law. Up to that point, they had nothing in writing. There was no leadership. No structure, all right? So the Ten Commandments was the beginning. And we'll read more about that next week when we get into chapter 5. After that, and while Moses was up on the mountain, remember he was up there, and if you read the book of Exodus, again, it mentions he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, 
Again, the people got tired of waiting and they thought, well, maybe he'll never come down. And they wanted this molten calf. So they went through that rigmarole and they were having a hoop de doo when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments and he got so angry, uh, he threw the commandments at them and condemned them. All right. Well, he had to go back up and get a Xerox copy then. And he did. And he did. And God said to him at that time that he would not exterminate those included, but the whole clan would have to wait until those people died out before they would be allowed to enter the promised land. Remember, the promised land uh, could be walked uh, even in those days. Uh, say a couple of weeks from the time of, I mean, from the distance of Egypt, uh, the main part of Egypt where the Israelites had settled in the land of Goshen uh, to the borders of, of Israel is roughly a two weeks walk. Okay? And all they had to do is follow uh, right along the Mediterranean Sea and you would have gotten there. So they knew where it was. It was just that they were prevented from getting there as punishment. Okay. Most of their time, and I'm on page 11 now, most of their time was at a place called um, Kadesh Barnea. All right. Now, this idea of wandering didn't mean that they were wandering all over the Arabian Peninsula. They spent most of the 40 years or whatever it was at this place called Kadesh Barnea. Because, and if you use some kind of imagination and common sense, the Arabian desert doesn't really lend itself to supporting a lot of people. And therefore, they had to stop and plant and allow their flocks to grow and so forth and so on uh, in order to provide themselves with food and clothing and so forth. So most of the time was spent at that particular point. But they did do some rather uh, circuitous ways of getting there. All right. Now, when it came time, uh, when it came time to finally get going into the promised land, they sent some scouts up there to see what it was all like. Well, the scouts came back with glowing reports about uh, the soil, the culture, the uh, produce, uh, the herds, and so forth. But they also said that they were giants, and they were afraid. And this is, of course, one of the reasons for the condemnation also is because Moses said, God is with you, don't be afraid. And they said, no, nah, no, nah, we don't want to. We don't want to disturb those people. So, um, God delayed the whole action for some more time. Okay. I want to go on to uh, page 14. Now, God tells them in certain areas he would protect them 
provided that they didn't disturb or antagonize any of the peoples to through whom or through whose territory they had to uh, march through. And uh, it says here, though God had fought for Israel against Pharaoh, God will still just as easily turn against an unfaithful Israel. Remember, there is a reason, and I want to stop for just a moment here. There's a reason for all of this. God's plan of salvation began with Abraham. And it was handed down along with the covenant to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and then eventually to Moses and the people. The whole idea of of what God was trying to do with these people is really summarized in this diagram. The purpose here is that God had a plan in mind that eventually culminated in the passion, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And then from there, the establishment of the church, the Catholic Church. And it took all of this time, including all of the events depicted in the book of Deuteronomy, to begin that process. And God was not going to change his mind or deviate from that plan. It was going to be accomplished one way or the other. All right, so that is why he is so adamant about certain things. And this is something that you have to keep in mind because it affects us right down to today. It's important, really, (coughs) that you sort of understand uh, all of that. Any questions before we leave that particular subject? God's plan of salvation is behind all of this. All of... Well, here's mine right here. Just a different color. Okay. Um, But if you look at these four books here, and this little diagram here, which should be on the next page, you'll see that all of the books of the Old Testament point to the event of Jesus Christ, passion, death, and resurrection. But it took all of this time to set this plan in motion, slowly, one day at a time. And if you read any one of these books, you may not get that point immediately. But when you start reading them all and putting them together, it is loud and clear that that's the objective of all of this information. It points all to the event of Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. And why? Because Jesus, God himself, became man as the perfect offering back to the Father for the sins of all mankind. Mankind had nothing of his own 
that God hadn't already given him to offer back to God. And God, mankind was not worthy enough to offer anything perfect because God himself is the only thing that is divinely perfect. And therefore, God himself had to come in the form of Jesus to be that sacrificial lamb offered back to the Father in reparation for the sins of all mankind before, after, and even down to today. That sounds a little like Islam, isn't it? Doesn't it? All right. That was that was a cultural belief. And that is why so often uh, I've heard, because people learn that I teach scripture, they say, oh, I don't like the Old Testament. There's too much war and fighting. But the culture of that time period was that you either defended yourself or you'd be conquered. All right. And in this case, <clears throat> what they're referring to is that their understanding was that this land was given to them and they are going to get it one way or the other. And their understanding was that God encouraged the elimination of all of the people that were there. Now, most historians and scholars of scripture will say that that was relatively minor. But it was a big thing to the Jewish people. But the actual elimination was relatively minor. And when anybody invades a territory, remember these Israelites had not been in Israel for three or four hundred years. So the people who did come in after a while and settled there knew nothing about the Israelites nor this covenant with God and the promise. So you can understand how if you saw a horde of people coming into your backyard, you'd get up into arms immediately and that's what caused the problem. But the Israelites always felt that God was behind them in this. Now, I can't give you any better explanation than that. All right, I'm sorry, you're right. Uh, he's talking about a sentence on the middle of page 15 in the commentary about the fourth line down where it says the dark side of Israel's belief that it received the land as a gift from God was the practice and the impetus of really of eliminating those who held a different belief or who were in possession of the land at the time they entered. And that is a dispute that has always sort of rankled um, non-Jewish people ever since. Yeah. But a promise is a promise. You know, and who's to say? I don't have any good explanation. Yes, D? Yes, yes. D's uh, explanation is is accurate. Uh, purity of the Jewish faith that was uh, just in the development stage was of most importance to God. That was part of why he sent them to 
Egypt in the first place, uh, why they settled in the land of Goshen, which was a very fertile uh, and, and lush area to live in, at least in the beginning. Uh, and if he had not uh, sort of allowed the Egyptians to turn the Israelites into slaves, they probably would never have wanted to leave Egypt and would have then sort of assimilated into the Egyptians. And therefore, because of, and of course this is exactly what he was saying, Jesus wanted to keep these people separated from all other faiths so that other uh, beliefs, religious beliefs, would not creep in and contaminate what was just now developing as the Jewish faith. Whether you can accept that or not, um, in today's understanding of those same things, is, is beside the point. That was uh, the belief. That was the reason at the time. And page 14, sort of in the middle of the commentary. says, though God had fought for Israel against Pharaoh, God will just as easily turn against an unfaithful Israel. The Deuteronomist wanted to issue a warning. Divine acts of deliverance in the past are no guarantee for the future. And you see, this book is written for the future, down the road. Unfortunately, it was ignored, and their future of the northern kingdom was cut short in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. But what the Deuteronomists did was they took all of the religious writings, customs and traditions and laws, and tried to get these people to see it by condensing it into this one book here. Says the Deuteronomist wanted to issue a warning. Divine acts of deliverance in the past are no guarantee for the future. There is only one way Israel can look to the future with any hope. And that way is through obedience. And of course that is one thing that they were ignoring. Totally ignoring. Okay. Um, I want to digress for just a moment here because <laughs> I want to explain something here. For those of you who have your Bibles, and I wish you would bring them all the time, if you go to Ch uh, Psalm, Psalm 135 and or 136, Now, to find the Psalms, you put your fingers right in the middle of the book and open it up, and there you are. Okay? One thirty-five and one thirty-six. Now, these two Psalms are written at different times for different purposes, but they go back and they are a meditation on these first four chapters of Deuteronomy and the problems that the Israelites were faced with in their wanderings in the desert and their entry into 
the promised land. I'm not going to read it, but what I'd like you to do is during the week, uh, mark, mark these two somewhere so that you can get back to them and read those during the week and see how they fit in. And that is, that is one of the reasons uh, that the Psalms are important is because they often are reflections on past events and what God did uh, to help or protect the Jewish people through a rough time period. Yes, Dick? Uh, Psalm 135 and 136. They look like they are repeating themselves, but remember, the Psalms had a variety of reasons and purposes. The Jewish people did not have private devotional purpose. Uh, I'm sorry, private or devotional prayers, personal prayers. Most of their prayers were for public ceremony uh, or songs or marches or some special events uh, that memorialize or commemorates something a great event of the past. So that's why you'll see many of the Psalms repeating something that you may have read somewhere else. And that's okay, because what they're doing is just uh, commemorating or memorializing something of the past. Uh, Devotional prayers, personal prayers, was not a big thing in early Judaism. And in fact, even today, uh, they do not have personal prayer as we have it in our Catholic faith. On page 16 here, and I'm reading from the commentary. Tradition locates Moses' grave outside the promised land. <clears throat> there then needs to be an explanation for this apparent injustice. And we've gone through this already. And for the eventual succession to Moses' position of leadership among the tribes. Regarding the former issue, the Deuteronomists opt for a solution that preserves Moses' integrity. I don't buy it, but this is what it says. Though he was personally innocent of any guilt, Moses was unfortunately caught up in the wake of infidelity that enveloped the whole generation of rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, and that is the um, the molten calf, yes. Wouldn't it be another 40 years? Uh, a generation. Yeah, in a way, in a way, but if we're talking about the same 40 years. You know. Yes, all right. Um, this contrasts with the priestly tradition which came along after the exile, which accuses Moses himself of a breach of faith that resulted in his exclusion from the promised land. And if you go to Numbers chapter 20, it talks about the time when they ran out of food and water and Moses prayed that God would give them water and God says, yes, go over and take your staff and strike the rod, uh, strike the rock and water will come from it. Well, Moses looked around and, you know, all he saw was dry land very dry land, and this big rock, no water. And 
because he probably hesitated for a minute or two, a lot of people jump on that particular scene and say, "Uh uh-huh, he doubted, that's why he didn't get into the promised land. Oh, man, you know. Any explanation will do in a pinch, okay? The poor guy was a 100 years old plus. And each of us, as I was saying, each of us has a part in God's plan of salvation, you know. I do have my own copy. Each of us has a part in this. Moses had a big part. We only have a little bitty part, okay? But Moses' part was finished. He couldn't go any further anyways at that age. His part was finished. It was time now to turn the job of leadership over to younger people. And that makes a lot of sense. And it's emphasized by the fact that, as I said earlier, he was in the the great transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he must have been in heaven. Couldn't have been anywhere else. So, it, this whole idea of of why Moses didn't get into the promised land. But you see, the people in the time of this writing, they always looked for some explanation that had to do with punishment or favoritism. And, you know, even if it is a stretch, like I said, the poor guy did his job. Let him die in peace. Says these at the bottom is these two different explanations for the tradition about the grave of Moses probably reflect the exalic debate between communal guilt and personal responsibility as an explanation for the presence of evil and suffering in Israel's life. They had to have an answer for everything. Okay. Let's go over to. Chapter 4, because chapter 4 is very important. I want to read, because there's some very important points here. On 18, page 18. Now Israel, hear the statutes and decrees which I am teaching you to observe, that you may live and may enter in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. In observance of the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I enjoin upon you, you shall not add to what I command command you, nor subtract from it. You have seen that your own eyes, with your own eyes, that the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from your midst everyone that followed the uh, Baal of Peor, that is the molten calf situation. But you who clung to the Lord your God are all alive today. And therefore I teach you my statutes and decrees as the Lord my God has commanded me, that you may observe them in the land that you are uh, entering to occupy. Observe them carefully, for thus you will give evidence of your wisdom and intelligence to the nations who will hear all of these statutes and say, 
this great nation is truly a wise and intelligent people. Hmm. Or what great nation is there that has God so close to it as the Lord our God is for us to, whenever we call upon him? Or what great nation has statutes and decrees that are as just as this whole law which I am setting before you? And in one way, that's very true because it was the Jewish people that gave us the written laws. You might say, well, other people had written laws too. Yes, but they weren't handed down and observed even to today, like the Ten Commandments and the other 613 laws of the Jewish faith are still observed today, even though some of them no longer apply because they, uh, you know, technology and so forth has uh, made them obsolete. Right. But it's important in a way that we, in today's society, should give credit to the Jewish people for a lot of the written laws that we have. And there's a number of other things too. Okay. I've lost my place, but I'll go on. Therefore I teach you the statutes and decrees as the Lord my God has commanded me, that you may observe them in the land that you are entering to occupy. Observe them carefully, for this you will give evidence of your wisdom and intelligence, etc., etc. <clears throat> Going up. However, take care and be earnestly on your guard not to forget the things which your own eyes have seen, nor let them slip from your memory as long as you live, but teach them to your children and to your children's children. All right. Now, that was a law that God, that Moses actually did make that the scriptures, the writings, the traditions of the Jewish people were to be transmitted by the father of the family uh, to the children in a very serious way. Uh, and as he says here, oh no, not, not here, there's another place, but he says, write them on your forehead and so forth and so on. There was the day on which you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. Horeb is another word for Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given. All right, And he said to me, Assemble the people for me. This is God speaking to Moses now. He said, Assemble the people for me. Uh, I will have them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me as long as they live in the land, and may so teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain which blazed to the very sky with fire and was enveloped in a dense black cloud. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of the words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He proclaimed to you his covenant. Remember, covenant is very important to this book and to the Jewish people. He proclaimed to you his covenant, which he commanded you to keep, the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on two tablets of stone. 
The Lord charged me at the time to teach you the statutes and decrees which you are to observe over in the land you will occupy. Okay. Now we go through here a long um, dissertation on the dangers of idolatry. This is the reason that this book is written in the first place. Because this had become such a destructive disease among the people, particularly of the northern kingdom, but also of the southern kingdom, that it was threatening to destroy and did eventually destroy uh, the northern kingdom. You saw no form at all on the day of the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, <coughs> but strictly on your guard, therefore, not to degrade yourselves by fashioning an idol to represent any figure, whether it be the form of a man or a woman or any animal on the earth or any bird that flies in the sky. And he's saying this, of course, repeating it because that's exactly what these people were doing down here at this time period. And when you look up to the heavens and behold the sun or the moon or any star among the heavenly hosts, do not be led astray into adoring them and serving them. These the Lord your God has let fall to the lot of all other nations under the heavens. <clears throat> but you he has taken and led out of that iron foundry, Egypt, that you might be his very own people as you are today. Since the Lord was angered against me on your account and swore that I should not cross the Jordan nor enter the good land which he is giving you as a heritage, I myself shall die in this country without crossing the Jordan. But you will cross over and take possession of that good land. Take heed then, <clears throat> uh, lest forgetting the covenant which the Lord your God has made with you, you fashion for yourselves against his command an idol in any form whatsoever. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And then it goes on to what the God of Israel is like. When you have children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land, should you then degrade yourselves by fashioning an idol of any form and by this evil done in his sight provoke the Lord your God? I call heaven and earth this day to witness against you that you shall all quickly perish from the land which you will occupy when you cross the Jordan. You shall not live in it for any length of time, but shall be promptly wiped out. And they were, because they ignored this book. <clears throat> the Lord will scatter you among the nations, and he did. And there shall remain but a handful of you among the nations to which the Lord will lead you. And therefore you shall serve God's fashioned by the hands of man, out of wood and stone, gods which can neither see nor hear, neither eat or smell, yet there too you shall seek the Lord your God, and you shall indeed find him 
when you search after him <clears throat> with your whole heart and your whole soul. And that's, of course, what we are all being asked to do. Search after the Lord with your whole heart and soul. In your distress, when all these things shall have come upon you, you shall finally return to the Lord your God and heed his voice. Since the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will not abandon and destroy you, nor forget the covenant which under oath he made with your fathers. But eventually, as I've said before, in the fourth time period, because they continued to ignore this book and the teachings of God, God finally did withdraw the covenant totally from Israel. Ask now of the days of old before your time. Ever since God created man upon the earth, ask from one end of the sky to the other. Did anything so great ever happen before? Was it ever heard of? Did people ever hear the voice of God speaking from the midst of fire as you did and live? Or did any God venture to go and take a nation for himself from a, from midst another nation by testing, by signs and wonders, by war with his strong hand and outstretched arm, and by great terrors, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. All of this you are allowed to see, that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. <clears throat> On earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard him speaking out of the fire. For love of your fathers he chose their descendants and personally led you out of Egypt by his great power, driving out of your way nations greater and mightier than you, so as to bring you in and to make their land your heritage. As it is today, this is why you must now know and fix in your heart that the Lord is God in the heavens above and the earth below, and that there is no other. You must keep his statutes and commandments, which I enjoin on you today. <coughs> Excuse me that your children after you may prosper and that you may have long life on the land which the Lord your God is giving you forever. <coughs> Excuse me. This last chapter is very solemn in a way, but sums up, you might say, briefly, the objective of the Deuteronomist to try to get the people to wake up. Unfortunately, it did not happen. If you go to Psalm 81, we've talked about this before. <coughs> I'm only going to read I'm only going to read the last part of it here. It says, listen, my people, I give you warning. If only you would obey me, 
Israel, there must be no foreign god among you. See, it's repeating just what I just read here in a way. There must be no foreign god among you. You must not worship an alien god, for I, the Lord, am your god, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth that I may fill it. But my people did not listen to my words, and Israel did not obey me. And so I gave them over to hardness of heart. They followed their own designs. But even now, if my people would listen, if Israel would walk in my paths, in a moment I would subdue their foes against their enemies and unleash my hand. Those who hate the Lord would tremble, their doom sealed forever. But Israel I would feed with the finest wheat and satisfy them with honey from the rock. So, even though in the midst of a lot of destruction and turmoil, a lot of deaths and so forth, God is always there to accept those who are sincere in seeking his uh, favor and forgiveness. All right. So, and that's true now or at any time. God will always be open to someone who repents and turns sincerely away from whatever evil they may have done. Nothing is too great to be unforgivable. Anything and everything can be forgiven. Now you might say, well, what about the unforgivable sin? In Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, Christ talks about the unforgivable sin. And it's only unforgivable, and he's talking about blasphemy. And blasphemy really is... A firm belief that God cannot and will not forgive. Or God cannot and will not do something that he has promised to do. Uh, and it sets up a barrier between God and the person involved. Or groups of persons if they choose to believe that. And therefore it can't be forgiven until they change their mind. And open their heart. So, it isn't that it's totally unforgivable. It is that they have to open their mind and heart and ask for forgiveness. And then God is waiting to extend that forgiveness to them. And that's <coughs> that's what's behind all of that. All right, we've come to the end. And it was a quick four chapters I've gone through. I don't want to go through a lot of the detail. And, for example, in next week's lesson, <coughs> we're going to get into the commandments. Well, most of you uh, know the commandments pretty much from memory. I still uh, get one, two, and three mixed up a little, but that's all right. I know the essence. Um, so don't feel bad if you don't know them uh, from memory. But I don't want to go through the details of the commandments. What I am interested in you seeing 
is the commentary and understanding why <coughs> this is being presented again to the Israelite people or the Jewish people. Okay? Uh, because the warning that existed in the efforts of this book is a warning that we should be taken serious today because a lot of the same things are happening. History repeats itself. And believe me, uh, it certainly is doing that right now. Any questions? Yes, Dick? The, the two verses that struck me the most were chapter 4, 26 and 27, where God, I guess, is saying, I call heaven and earth I would think so, and I've often thought about that myself. What Dick is saying here is that in these writings, it points out not just in chapter 4, but many, well, Psalm 81 as well. And if you read Chronicles chapter 13, it gives you a whole list of reasons why they ended up in Babylon. And it's the Jewish people that wrote that stuff. You see, that's what's so difficult to understand. It is the Jewish people who are writing this stuff, and yet they don't apparently stand by what they have written. They don't abide by it. I mean, you take the Jewish people and write today and their treatment of the Palestinians. Love of neighbor, you know, out the window. And what neighbor could be closer than the Palestinians who actually living among them. Now, I can't say that Palestinians are really white either, but nevertheless, uh, they should be observing the same law. But you're right. They write this stuff, and yet they don't believe it, or they don't observe it. And that's hard to understand. But all through the Bible, Old Testament, you'll find that. Yeah. Any other questions? None? Goodness. Either you're tired or... Uh, oh, you were thoroughly eloquent. Oh, yeah, I left you spellbound. Eh? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yes, Mike. Ah, oh, you're good, Mike. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, Mike is pointing out where I began to study scripture. I saw the movie Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, you know, with Charlton Heston and... <laughs> And I came out of there saying, you know, that was a great movie, but, oh, by the way, Maria, that was the last movie I saw, you know. <laughs> uh, I met 
Maria and John in the theater the other day. <laughs> <clears throat> yes. Um, I came out of the theater thinking, you know, that's interesting, but how did the Jews get there in the first place? And why? You know, because you always associate the Jewish people with Israel or Palestine. And so I had to go back into the book of uh, Genesis. Uh, you have to go back even before Exodus. Go in the book of Genesis to find out how they got there. And you'll find <coughs> that Abraham's grandson Jacob and his 12 sons and their whole family and all of that had to leave Egypt. I mean, I'm sorry, had to leave Israel <coughs> and migrate to Egypt to avoid a famine that was decimating all of Israel. And it was part of God's plan to get the people into a location that was sur almost surrounded by water. Um, and that was the land of Goshen, the part, part of northern Egypt where they settled in order to keep them sort of uh, corralled into a location to increase and multiply but stay within uh, the 12 tribes. Okay. And that was part of the law. That was part of what Dee had talked about earlier. Part of the idea of God wanting to keep these people so that what they were learning, what they were developing over a period of time would be uh, not influenced by outsiders. And one of the reasons that they were put into slavery was because that they would not join in with the uh, Egyptians in worshiping the Egyptian gods. Okay. That was only one of the reasons. Okay. Does that help you? Re yeah, that whole region there. Yes, those people were the descendants of Esau, who was Jacob's, Jacob's brother. Yes. Okay. And perhaps of Ishmael, <coughs> who was their uncle. Great uncle. Yeah. Okay. I won't go into all of that detail. Okay. Uh, does that help you? All right. Yes. Lord, we thank you for helping us through this evening. A tough lesson in a way, but hopefully interesting. It's the beginning of the study of the book of Deuteronomy and the purpose for which it was written, which is a little different than the purpose of some of the other books. Help us then to take to heart not only the words <clears throat> that are given us in the scripture, but to understand the reasons for the scripture so that we don't fall into the same trap. For those people were wiped out because they refused to obey you and stand by your statutes. Help us then to not do the same thing. Help us to kind of understand <clears throat> where you want us to be and to always to be faithful to you and to our role in your plan of salvation. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name.